Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... Why are we in this world? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. Today we are joined by Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Andrew. Father Gallagher is a priest of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, has written numerous books, including A Biblical Way of Praying the Mass and The Discernment of Spirits, and has spoken on Ignatian spirituality around the world. So again, Father Gallagher, thanks for making the time to be here. We really appreciate it. Really happy to be here, and these are things I'm happy to talk about, too. And uh, how long have you been talking about Ignatian spirituality? Hmm. It's getting close to 40 years now, I'd say. It just started as simple talks on the Ignatian rules for discernment in the course of retreats. And what happened was people just wanted more and more of it. And it's become kind of a full-time thing and led to books. And well, it's basically what I do now. And you're forming future priests at the uh, seminary in Denver now, right? I am in Denver. My community, the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, has two houses here in Denver. And I live in one of them and commute to the seminary to assist in the spiritual formation there. So the official title is the uh, St. Ignatius Chair of Spiritual Formation. And what it involves is speaking to the men as part of their spiritual formation on topics like discernment, the examined prayer, prayer with scripture, and things like that. How did the idea of discernment of spirits get started in the tradition? Well, I think the roots of that go back into the Old Testament when God calls certain people for certain tasks. So God calls Moses, for example, or even more basically Abraham, let's say. God intervenes in people's lives to call them to a certain way of living, a certain task that is part of his saving mission in the world. So we see the roots of it there. But like everything else, the real center point is Jesus. And so you read, for example, in the letter to the Hebrews chapter 10, that coming into the world, Jesus said, behold, I come to do your will. Your will is my delight, quoting Psalm 40 in the Old Testament, but bringing it to a whole new level. And if you look through the four Gospels, you see Jesus over and over again telling us that if he says certain things, if he goes to certain places, if he accomplishes certain works, it is because he does the will of the Father. You know, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I do always what is pleasing to him. And then powerfully in the agony in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. So it's very clear as you look at Jesus, who is the model of all Christian living and whom we seek to imitate, that what guides everything in his life is the sense that he has come into the world because the Father has given him a mission to accomplish that no one else can accomplish, and that so much hinges for the history of the world, for the salvation of more people than we can ever imagine, depends on his knowing what that will is and faithfully carrying it out. In her different way, you see that in Mary, when the angel comes to her, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. That's all that she wants is to be available to the mission that she now knows God has revealed to her. And then you see it on down the line. And you could go through the saints, the way Francis of Assisi felt the call and on down through uh, all of our traditions. So this is deep in our tradition. Why are we in this world? God has put us in this world and given us these years of life that we have because he has a specific mission for us to accomplish in this world. And our happiness, his love for us uh, dictates that mission to us. 
He provides the necessary circumstances for it, the family of origin, health, the culture in which we live, the individual talents that he's given us, and so forth. The many ways in which God blesses us, all of that has a purpose. And the purpose is that we understand the task that God has given us in this world, say yes to it, accomplish it faithfully. Look, none of us are perfect, but sincerely, the best we can through the years of our life, and so enter an eternity of joy with God. Now, once that's said, if that's what life is all about, Ignatius of Loyola calls that the foundation. That meaning of life is the only real understanding of why we're in this world. Once we see that, then the desire, and I'd say the need to know what that specific mission is that God has given us becomes very, very important. Look at our present Pope, Pope Francis, who never stops talking about it. This is new to me. When I was studying to be a priest before I discerned out of seminary, I was actually in a retreat that you, Father Gallagher, preached to over a hundred of us seminarians on a summer program. And that was kind of where I started to learn about Ignatius of Loyola's work in developing his spiritual exercises. I've always been a little fuzzy on this. The exercises were part of the rules or vice versa? Vice versa. Vice versa. Okay. So Ignatius doesn't really invent anything. There's a whole tradition of discernment that you can trace back, as I say, to the scriptures and the early church fathers and so on. People like Evagrius in the Eastern Church and John Cashin in the Western Church and so forth and on down through the centuries. So there is a very rich biblical and patristic tradition of discernment that precedes Ignatius. What he does is he takes the tradition and expresses it in his own way, but with a clarity and a simplicity and a practicality that are so evident that we tend to speak of these things as Ignatian subsequently. But what is really Ignatian about it is the expression of it in a way that makes it very usable. And he certainly has done this as regards discernment. There are others who speak about it, but I think you'd be hard put to find anyone who speaks about discernment with the clarity and practicality with which Ignatius does. Now, what happens is that Ignatius is pretty wayward until the age of 30. His leg is shattered in battle, and there's a long convalescence. There are three surgeries and Oh, probably the better part of a year that all of this goes on. And in the course of that, he, to pass the time, begins reading the only books available to him, A Life of Christ, and then a volume with Lives of the Saints, and finds himself thinking in a new way about what he might do with his life. And in the course of this, comes to see that there are different responses in his heart relative to two different sets of thoughts about living, in one case, in a very worldly way, far from God and in this new way, which would be in imitation of the saints. And the moment he sees this, that one set of thoughts about the worldly way of life always leaves him empty, ultimately, and the set of thoughts about living like St. Francis and Dominic and the others leaves him ultimately happy and feeling nourished. Something feels right in his heart. So his very conversion occurs in the context in which his teaching on discernment is born. And out of that, Ignatius writes the spiritual exercises, which he enriches as the years go by. And a part of this little book of the spiritual exercises is this set of rules on understanding the ups and downs of daily spiritual living, what we call this discernment of spirits. I'm kind of imagining a modern equivalent frat bro 
who, like you said, has a wayward existence until he tears his ACL playing lacrosse. And suddenly for the first time, he's forced to reckon with the movements of his heart. And what what is that root there? It's a great comparison. <laughs> but obviously way more dramatic in Ignatius's sense, where, like you said, he was actually wounded in battle. From what I understand, Ignatius's personality was sort of given to kind of dramatic swings to kind of commit himself without necessarily considering all the angles, right? Well, Ignatius has this moment of conversion, but, you know, he's 30 years old and he's never doubted his faith, but he's never really lived it. In fact, to say it gently, he probably aren't too many of the Ten Commandments that he didn't break in some pretty serious way in those years. It's something like an Augustine story prior to Augustine's confession. So yes, he's a man of great energy. When he was pursuing a worldly life, he pursued it with great energy. And now that he is giving his life to God, he's pursuing it with great energy, but he's not yet formed or trained or experienced in the spiritual life. And so yes, he does, for example, uh, undertake excessive penances that really hurt him, his health in ways that he'd carry for the rest of his life finds a better balance with the help of a confessor and so forth. So yeah, certainly you have this initial stage where there's great energy, but there's a a formation in the spiritual life that hasn't yet taken place, but it does take place. And uh, the time comes when Ignatius is really a master at this and uh, a teacher for the rest of us in a way that, as I say, is uniquely usable. You mentioned uh, with the help of a confessor, which plays a big part in the spiritual exercises and in daily spiritual life, which we typically nowadays talk about in the sense of not just going to confession, but also having a spiritual director. For people who are unfamiliar with that notion, maybe they think of it at first as like a therapist or a counselor. How does a spiritual director differ from any one of those other things, either a priest hearing a confession or a therapist? So a therapist is dealing on the level of our humanity. So emotional issues and the healing of those, deeper insight into them and healthier, more mature ways of responding to them, which is a wonderful thing. And thank God that we have that option when there are good psychologists or counselors who can help us in that way. The spiritual director deals with the person on a different level, and it's the specifically spiritual level. If you want, it's the difference between nature and grace. Now, there's only one human person who has a human nature and in whom grace works, but these are different dimensions of our being. So a spiritual director is not going to try to do what a counselor or therapist does. What a spiritual director will attempt to do is to accompany a person and help a person as that person's relationship with God unfolds. So you're going to deal with things like prayer, what's happening in the person's prayer. Are there ups and downs? Where are the thoughts and the attractions and the resistances and the joys and sorrows in the person's spiritual life? Where are they directed? What do they mean? Where may God be in the course of that? When somebody embarks on attempting to live a more faithful spiritual life, and they do so without a spiritual director, what are some of the dangers to doing that? Well, the first thing I'd say is that God never asks of us more than our best. So if you have a person who's done the best that he or she can to find this kind of spiritual direction and has not been able to find it, uh, God is not going to hold the person accountable, let's say, for not having that kind of help. That's a good point. But at the same time, I would say if someone listening feels drawn to receive spiritual direction, has not yet been able to find the right person for that, don't give up too easily. 
and don't let the first or the second or even the third attempt to contact someone that doesn't work out. Let's say that the director simply says, I'd love to, but I just don't have time. Please don't get discouraged too easily. This is worth pursuing. We have a promise in the Gospels, you know, ask and you'll receive, seek and you will find. So now having said that, when a person has spiritual direction, let's say the person begins to struggle in his or her spiritual life. I don't know. Let's say that here's a woman who's been, uh, her prayer has been really fruitful and she's felt God's closeness over the past six or eight months and she's taken new steps. Maybe she's spending 20 minutes every morning before work or before getting the children up, praying with the daily readings from the Mass for the day and she loves what's happening. Maybe she listens to evening prayer from the Liturgy of the Hours on an app as she commutes back from work and has taken various steps. Maybe daily Mass is getting in there a bit more and just loves what's happening. And then at a certain point, finds that the same energy isn't there. Prayer feels more dry. She doesn't feel God's closeness in the same way. She rises from her time of prayer not feeling nourished in the same way. And something similar as regards the other aspects of her spiritual life. And she doesn't know what's happening. And because she doesn't know what's happening, she doesn't know what to do about it. I'm just creating one scenario where a meeting with a spiritual director will be very, very helpful because in that conversation, the spiritual director will help her to understand more clearly what's happening so that she has a clearer sense of how to move forward with this. So spiritual direction is wonderful in so many ways. That's just one instance. I know I've found it hard to distinguish between, you know, a couple of the movements that you're talking about that just having another person who understands this dynamic and is able to view it from an outside perspective is really helpful to indicate, yes, you're, you're reading that correctly or no, you're a little bit skewed or maybe you're being too hard on yourself or something like that. And distinguishing between different movements interiorly some of which may be genuinely spiritual and some of which may be more surface movements that are maybe just a function of being a human being. How do they typically distinguish between those those two kinds of movements? Yeah, great question. I've dealt at that, if I may mention some of my resources, I've discussed that at some in some depth in uh, two of the books. One is called The Discernment of Spirits, the one you mentioned, and the second is Setting Captives Free. And also in a series, uh, two series of podcasts on the Discerning Hearts app. Um, so just to say that if a person wants to go more deeply into that, there are resources. But in terms of what we can say here, let's go back to those same two levels, nature and grace. So let's call them spiritual, and I'll, I'll call the other non-spiritual or natural, psychological, whatever word you want to use. Ignatius uses the categories of spiritual consolation times of joy in the Lord and spiritual desolation, times of discouragement in the spiritual life. So let's just take spiritual consolation. There's a difference between getting some healthy exercise and just feeling better, putting on some bouncy, upbeat music and just feeling your spirits rise, spending time with a friend, sharing a meal with the family, and you enjoy these things and feel better for them. All of these are wonderful things, but you can see we're on the natural level what I'm calling the non-spiritual level there. Ignatius in his teaching of discernment of spirits is always on the spiritual level. So let's say a woman rises and let's say she's going to get the results of the biopsy this afternoon. She meets with the doctor and understandably she's anxious about this and there's a heaviness in her heart. And she rises that morning 
heads down the corridor toward the kitchen to put on coffee and start the day. And let's say that she has a placard on the wall with uh, Psalm 23 and maybe an image of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Though I walk in a dark valley, I fear no evil. You are with me with your rod and your staff. And as she walks by this, her heart receives just for a moment that message. And with an uplift of heart, she finds herself saying, Lord, you'll be with me. However this goes, I know you'll be with me and you'll see me through this. Now you can see that that is an experience on the level of grace, on the level of the spiritual life. So that would be spiritual consolation. And that's what we're talking about in Discernment of Spirits. We have a lot more to talk about with Father Gallagher. So we'll be back next time with part two of our interview on discernment. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Today we're talking about The Prince of Egypt, a DreamWorks animated film from 1998 that nobody talks about anymore that is criminally underrated. Kara, thank you for joining us. (laughs) Thanks for having me. And thanks for getting me to finally watch this movie. I'd never seen it. (laughs) I had only seen it a couple times before and going back I thought, well, okay, it's not going to be that good. It's not going to be as good as I remember. Reader, it was better than I remember. This movie is phenomenal and shocking, and everybody should still be talking about it. It's so funny you say that because I hadn't seen this before. And I honestly don't really remember it even being marketed, which is wild because what it was came out in 1998, I think. Yeah. Which like I wasn't, you know, living under a rock as a, you know, middle schooler. I'm kind of surprised that this one didn't come on to my radar. And then, you know, we I come into the movie and let me just read out the cast. Val Kilmer, Ralph Fiennes, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sandra Bullock, Jeff Goldblum, Danny Glover, Patrick Stewart, Helen Mirren. Like, my goodness. Patrick Stewart and Helen Mirren. Oh, sorry. Steve Martin, Martin Short. Wow. I just can't believe that I never, it never crossed my my path at all. I mean, I maybe had heard of it, but it wasn't until you brought it up to watch it that I was like, oh, okay, I guess that was a thing. And then apparently it was like the highest grossing uh, animated movie, non-Disney movie mm. at the time, which is still pretty incredible. This movie is animated, but it's not really for kids. I don't know if there's that much in it that kids find appealing. Yeah, it doesn't really have any, like, slapstick humor. Yeah. There's no talking animal sidekicks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, you're right. There's nothing fantastical. I mean, other than, you know, the plagues. Right. <laughs> the things that happened. Right. So The Prince of Egypt was uh, the second movie that DreamWorks ever made after Ants. Uh, and it was still a few years before Shrek, which we talked about last year. And this was their big swing. Honestly, Kara... For my money, this is, I'm going to say it, the greatest religious movie ever made. Whoa. And the second greatest animated movie ever made. So you're putting this above and beyond Passion of the Christ. Better than Passion of the Christ. Yep. I mean, I haven't seen the Ten Commandments, but I heard that basically Katzenberg's idea for this was that he wanted to do an animated version of the Ten Commandments. So this is also putting it ahead of its inspiration. Yes. So I should say best explicitly religious movie. Whereas I think there's there's one that tops it that's implicitly religious, but it isn't really about the Bible per se. We'll get into Toy Story 3 later, though. <laughs> yeah, so the Prince of Egypt wow. is... <laughs> that's a high praise, high praise. Okay. You're not the only one coming into this episode with hot take. <laughs> but uh, we decided to talk about this because uh, Passover and Holy Week are coming up, uh, and it seemed thematically appropriate. And 
to my surprise at least, there's some stuff about familial love in here. But DreamWorks released this movie in 1998 based on largely The Ten Commandments, which came out in 1956, which you all have probably seen starring Charlton Heston, which people actually don't know that itself was a remake of a silent movie that came out in 1923. Both of those were directed by Cecil B. DeMille. He remade his own movie. Uh, and obviously both of those based on the first half of the Book of Exodus from the Pentateuch of the Bible. You said people do not know, including me. Those are, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, the uh, the silent movie Ten Commandments was itself in its own day a big deal. Oh. It was like one of the more notable silent movies of its era. Oh, I'm not the only one who is so high on this movie, Kara. I have a Roger Ebert quote. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Here's Roger Ebert writing in 1998. Not long ago, I saw the first of the great screen epics about Moses and his people, the 1923 silent version of Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. Everyone must be familiar with DeMille's 1956 sound version, which plays regularly on television. If DeMille had seen this film, The Prince of Egypt, he would have gone back to the drawing board. That's high praise. (laughs) Can I pull in my my hot take now? Please go, yeah. (laughs) It is an animated musical, and I frankly, almost every song as it was going, I'm like, this doesn't need to be a musical. I'm not into this musical. <laughs> We're in agreement on what, right, Kara? I can't remember the actual name of the song, the miracle song at the end that- When You Believe is what it's called. Yeah, When You Believe, which went on to be a pop hit by Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. No problem with that song. Fantastic song. But pretty much everything else, I was like, the music's fine, but I really didn't need it. That's my that's my hot take. I, I really could have done without it. I know I stand alone out on this this pier <laughs> because my husband also brought this up to his coworkers and basically was vilified for it. So we stand alone. <laughs> Care, I'll let you have the Egyptian sorcerer song with Steve Martin and Martin Short. You're playing with the big boys now. That's not a good song. Fine. And then like the wedding montage song where Moses meets. Zipporah and gets married to her in the tribe of Jethro. Eh, it's fine, but it's disposable. Deliver Us and All I Ever Wanted are also great right up alongside When You Believe. I love those two, especially when Ralph Fiennes' pharaoh is like screaming at Moses with the sculptures behind him, like the massive statues of his ancestors behind him. Like it's just cinematic masterpiece. I can't get over how good this movie is. I did appreciate the sort of visual styling. Yeah, I feel like like the animation itself and the kind of like storytelling was very compelling. It was just, I would not sit down and listen to this as opposed to independent of watching the movie. Whereas like almost every Disney movie, like every song's a banger and <laughs> I can still sing all of them. No problem. Every lyric. This, this wasn't going to make the cut for me. On the visual side, it's the best parting of the Red Sea effect, which mm. in the trivia, they talk about the behind the scenes of, of that sequence, which in the movie is like two minutes long. And they had 10 animators work on it for two years. <laughs> yeah. And it's so worth it. There's this one shot when the, the Hebrews are passing through the Red Sea and the, the wall of water is on one side of them. And they have torches because it's at night. So it already looks like the Liturgy of Fire from the Easter Vigil. You have the Wall of Mm. Water, which is already one of the readings from the Easter Vigil, is this episode. The Wall of Water strongly calling to mind not just the waters of creation with the whale inside of it, but also the waters of baptism, which you get with the Liturgy of Baptism later in the Easter Vigil most of the time. So in that one shot, 
it sums up the first half of our Easter Vigil, even this, though this movie is trying to be ecumenical. Because that's one thing they also talk about at the beginning of this movie. Is we've done our best to adapt this story in accordance with the world's religions. We think it is pretty true to the source, but you can find the original in the book of Exodus. They say that right up front. And like, I guess they consulted like 600 religious scholars. They did also, it was a little bit of a like, don't come at me, bro, uh, yeah. vibe, because it was like, we took some artistic license, you know, let us, let us just have it for a second. Right. Which I think, you know, I went back and reread Exodus. Um, and I think sort of like the characterization of Moses as a youth is like complete fiction. Oh, yeah. In the story, I certainly think that they like show that there's a transformation, but there's certainly nothing in the biblical text to make us think that Moses was like a rambunctious youth. Yeah, he's like a fun-loving, mischievous scamp. Yeah. That's probably the most kids movie part of this, just to make him like sympathetic to kids, you know, make him seem a little fun, which is not, yeah. you're right, that is extra biblical, that is not in the source. So, you know, we're not saying that's the way it was. It just, it makes for a more fun animated movie in that respect yeah and then he meets his sister who gives him a rude awakening about the reality of slavery in in egypt and suddenly he questions everything and the tone of the movie radically shifts hmm. that scene is another incredibly animated scene where it's really it's a very simple scene it's just two people talking but the wind and her tears and just the pain in her face it's absolutely incredible mm. at the well you mean yeah a couple of things that are incredible about the thematic content of this movie. It doesn't pull its punches when it talks about the sins involved. It talks about slavery. <laughs> I love when my animated kids movie starts from the jump with hard slave labor and infanticide. <laughs> you know you're in for a, a fun time. But it portrays it so well and it doesn't pull any punches. Just like Moses' sister Miriam doesn't pull any punches when she's talking to him about what he's unwittingly part of or maybe not so unwittingly it's interesting because i feel like the way they do it akin to at least my experience of the bible story i think as a kid you maybe get what's going on but not really and then you know coming back to it as an adult when you can actually understand the horrors of what is being depicted i think it does enough to sort of give that emotional hit when the mother puts Moses into the basket, I mean, obviously, I'm like a new mom, so this is all hitting afresh. But it's one of those things where, like, you know, in your mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know the story. His mom puts him in the basket, puts him down the river. And then you're really thinking about it like, oh, my gosh, she's putting her three-month-old son in a basket. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't ask me to do that. Watching it, you know, with Vivi's, like, asleep on me, I was, like, holding her extra close. I'm like, oh. <laughs> And then the other area that neither Miriam nor the filmmakers pull punches on is God's presence in the story. In previous episodes where we've been talking about some movies, we've been dealing with some unseen supernatural forces in both Encanto and Weathering With You. But this time we're dealing with a supernatural force that is extremely seen, <laughs> who reveals himself to Moses and to the Hebrews and to the Egyptians. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is actually a character in this movie. And they don't try to smooth that over very much. No. I did not particularly love the visual choice on the burning bush, but you're right. They they did like a nice job of its I mean the, the kind of Oh where it's like, like the shimmery spirit. looking spirit. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I think, I mean, it was nice that it kind of pulled through into the spirit that goes and visits all of the houses over Passover. They felt like they were one in the same. That effect later on, the Passover scene, I thought that visualization of it was pulled off much better. Yeah, I agree. All right. Kara, one thing I think this movie does that is especially interesting, which isn't totally unrelated to what we've talked about with Encanto, but isn't really emphasized in Exodus is the daddy issues angle of this movie. Because one thing that has to be done in this movie, you know, they they have to characterize Moses early on as kind of a fun-loving mischief maker. But they also have to characterize his surrogate brother, Ramses, who eventually becomes Pharaoh, and give his character more of like an emotional motivation than he has in scripture. Because what they've done in the movie is they have made Ramses' father, Pharaoh at the beginning, Seti, voiced by Patrick Stewart, in like a meaner performance than I've ever heard Patrick Stewart give. (laughs) All Ramses cares about in his relationship with his father is his father's approval. They say this like right up front. And what this movie does, because this relationship is filmed against the backdrop of Egypt's architecture, either at its height or higher than its real-life architecture ever got. The buildings, the sculptures, the statues in this movie look incredible and are used to great effect in the backgrounds. So when the father is lecturing his son about not being the weak link and carrying on the dynasty, it's not just the father. It's the father, the ancestors, and the gods all on the same page and lecturing Ramses about how he has to carry on and make Egypt the greatest power on the earth. Mm-hmm. make a name for themselves one way they put it in i think the tower of babel incident in genesis but the same sort of impulse is there too in the pharaohs in this story and so what this movie is basically trying to get at in that relationship if you're raising your son to only care about your approval you're raising him to worship you as an idol mm-hmm. and It's almost like this movie is saying that to give your kid daddy issues, to not raise your son well, to not be a good father is inherently pagan, which I love about this movie. (laughs) I I would not have quite connected that, but I think that's a fair point. It's funny you mention it because I was thinking about the sort of daddy issues too, and I can't quite decide if the story tries to make Ramses more sympathetic through that and almost excusing his obstinance in a way. Whereas, you know, when reading scripture, he's just incredibly obstinate. And it's more about his own pride. In this way, it almost makes it seem like, you know, they were brothers, like Ramses was a good guy. He just like has daddy issues. I think you could interpret the movie that way, like the movie's trying to give Ramses sort of a pass by saying, oh, he had a rough childhood, therefore what he did isn't so bad. I think it's possible to read the movie that way. How I read it is more, it's just a nuanced take on a very sinful character. Because I think he is confronted mm-hmm. with the legacy of what the dynasty has done to God's people. And he has a chance in this movie, he has 10 chances really, to go in a different direction, to repent. <laughs> And I think he's aware of that family wound. Well, a wound as it's inflicted on him, but a sin from the family's perspective. I think he's aware of it, and he still chooses it. So I don't think he's really excused here. I think it's a harder choice for him than maybe it is for from what we know about Pharaoh based on the scriptural account. But I think he's still, at the end of the day, has the same Mm -hmm. kind of moral makeup. Fair. I think they do a good job in the movie 
portraying the fact that he did have a many chances and b this kind of like obstinate pride that you know Moses is continually giving him the chance and trying to be like just let them go it's it's not that hard it's funny this movie kind of completes a journey across the spectrum of multi-generational pressures on kids from Coco to Encanto to this, this being the worst because the family divinizes itself. <laughs> she was like, I am the moon and the stars. Yeah. yeah. They don't say, so let it be written, so let it be done. But you basically get that sense anyway. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I like that they built that on this core of this emotional dynamic between a father and a son that I sort of saw Ramses like a high school quarterback and Seti, his father, is like the overbearing father pressuring him to get get like a scholarship and win state. Like it, it yeah. felt very Friday Night Lights. It's interesting, too, because at the same time, you've got Moses being like, Dad, you're being too hard on him. He's like, I know, but I got to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yep. Look, if I don't, you know, the kingdom's going to go to hell. Yeah. It's like... There's some pretty bad, archaic uh, modeling of of parenting here. (laughs) Yeah. But in both idolatry and these daddy issues that we see in the modern day, they both revolve around a man trying to create something for himself, whether it be his own gods or his own domain or his own wealth, like his own small business or his own Hall of Fame sports career. He's always trying to make a name for himself. But he knows he knows eventually the whole enterprise is pointless if his son doesn't toe the line and take over for him. So Archie Manning has to have Peyton Manning and Eli. Or John D. Rockefeller has to have, you know, subsequent Rockefellers to carry on, the, or the Gettys, or, you know, whatever example you want to think of. Because if it's just limited to you and it doesn't outlast your death, you can't ignore how fruitless it is. If you have your kid take over for you, after you die, you can at least ignore how fruitless it ultimately is. <laughs> it's funny. It reminds me a lot of when we talked about The Great Divorce and the um, artist who's like, they don't talk about me anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is you know, kind of a different, a, a bit of a variation because he's not like, oh, you know, it's not being carried on through my ancestors. He just wanted his own glory to live on forever. But sort of same same vibe. Yeah. And like in the artist case, it's not passing from father to son. It's passing from member of the in crowd, the intelligentsia to the next member of the in crowd. But it's the same kind of dynamic. And it's a dynamic that is inherently pagan because it's relying on our own efforts and worshiping a limited good rather than the creator. So I thought that was really cool that they connected family relationships to that. I'm not sure if any non-biblical story could accomplish that connection either. Maybe it has been. You know, I'm not well-read enough in, you know, healthy Christian fiction that has followed the scriptural age. But as far as I can remember, I don't know of any 20th century secular stories or 21st century secular stories that have made that kind of connection. Mm, Have you read Brothers K? Oh, I set myself up for that one, didn't I? (laughs) I mean... Yeah, there we go. We we can strike this. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, granted, it's Dostoevsky. You're hardly dealing with like some pedestrian author, right? <laughs> when we talk about Brothers K, you know, it's much more intentional and in talking about like the sins of the father. But but no, you're this you're is right. not a this is not a podcast about Brothers K. <laughs> That'd be a whole other thing. That'd be many episodes, yeah. many many episodes. <laughs> We couldn't fit everything we wanted to say about Prince of Egypt into this episode, so be sure to tune in next time for part two of both our interview with Father Gallagher and the rest of our Prince of Egypt talk. 
but this will be our last episode before Easter. So have a blessed Holy Week. You too. Have a good one. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you.